and I'll search the world over for my angel in black. Yeah, search the world over for a Euro trash girl. Took the train down to Athens. I slept in a fountain. Some Swiss junkie in Turin ripped me off on my cash. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode three of Unfrozen. I'm Dan Safarik. And I'm Greg Lindsay, and we're here in Turin, Torino. Here for Utopian Hours, a festival of urbanism, cities, all that good stuff, all that good stuff that I've missed for 18 months, Dan. It's good to be here. It was good to be with you in the Biennale, but now it's good to be back at dinners and espressos. And I think we're on like our third cappuccino right now. So I believe I'm on my fifth coffee-based beverage uh, and it's uh, not quite 11 a.m. Yeah. First two episodes were brought to you by alcohol. This episode is brought to you by Pure and Cut Caffeine. And we're also joined by our first guest, who will hopefully be chiming in here. We're joined here in the room by Alexander Siebenthal, who is the producer and host of our own podcast, Design in the City. This is a podcast about podcasting, officially. Say hi, Alex. Hi, guys. Thank you for having me. Let's see if I can keep up with these two. <laughs> so, Dan, we're, we've, got, we've got day one of Utopian Hours in the books. I'm curious your thoughts, because the one thing that jumps out at me, for those of you who cannot see out the windows, because this is a podcast, is the Precollinear Park. It is a high line that is on the ground, as I like to say. Um, it's a former tram line. It goes across a bridge across the Po. And it's kind of lovely, but we've all been kind of wincing looking at it because we all keep thinking about the Austrian pavilion at the Biennale there with its typologies of like platform urbanism and like, yeah, shipping containers, check, uh, pallet furniture, check. Um, I don't know, urban sound system, check. It's, uh, I don't know, the question I have looking at it now, I'm like, are we, are we the baddies down? Yeah, we might we we might be the bad people, um, you know, because we we do flock to these things like moths to a flame, um, you know. I mean, if you, what architect could resist the sight of a shipping container and the need to put it somewhere? It's true. It's like the swallows <laughs> to San Capistrano. Like I must do something with the shipping container, even if, as Alex knows well from like the manifesto team in Prague, shipping containers are not actually suited to do anything. Right? Like you actually have to massively retrofit a shipping container to do anything worthwhile with it. Yeah. As but. soon as you as soon as you cut a hole in it, um, you've compromised it. I actually had somebody. I was wearing a Chicago Architecture Center backpack. My bad. You know because that makes people want to talk to you. It is literally like wearing a target on your back. Um, the C logo is like three quarters of a target, right? Um, and a stranger approached me and said, you know, are you an architect? I was like, yes, all of us wear these. Um, <laughs> you know, he's like, I'm thinking about, I'm more of an entrepreneur, you know, but I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about going into something with shipping containers. I'm like, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. So we, we have to find out at some point, who's who's ground zero for shipping containers? I, I want to say, is this MBRDB? Do we hold them responsible? Who did the shipping containers first? I think it was Low Tech, L-O-T-E-K. Oh, right. Yes. At least they were best known for it. I mean, depicting arrangements. I don't remember if they actually, do they actually build something or do they just do renderings? Something like that. I do remember, like, that was a very 90s thing, right? Low Tech was the one. And that, not to be confused with Julia Watson's Low Tech, which is all about indigenous knowledge. But, like, this was, yeah, but it was the same spelling, which I think also has the confusion. 
Um, but yeah, that's, I would say we need, we need to like go back and his, send a time machine back and like erase that entire legacy of that one. No offense to low time. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm, I'm all for upcycling and recycling and there, there is definitely a, or at least was, well, no, given, the, given, shipping containers given the cost of shipping containers. Now we actually need those shipping containers back. <laughs> we'll take them back, please. You know, we'll, we'll have to hack out the benches and the bike parking. That's Seriously. If, if it's 20,000, at one point it was like $20,000 a load in a shipping container from Shanghai to like the port of Los Angeles. So like, let's, let's reclaim those. Like, you know, just like people stealing copper wiring, it's time we start boosting shipping containers out of parks again. Yep. All I need, all you need is a guy with a truck. That's true. Well, the other thing you mentioned is you mentioned you're in Chicago and you have a logo that's halfway to Target. One of my favorite tropes, by the way, of like kids, social media and architecture is that the Carson Peary Scott building, you know, icon Chicago architecture is now referred to on Instagram as the goth target because it is now a target, no longer a department store. And the kids do not understand the architecture. Well, or they understand it better than most, but like it's referred to as like the gothiest target. Louis Sullivan is not goth. Okay. He's post goth, you know, he's post goth pro plant. I just want to like, who, you know, which kids got red pilled by like the Louis Sullivan, like, you know, Target. Like you imagine, you know, you and I grew up in like big box suburbia. Alice is from San Diego. So like sunnier version of exurbia, but like we all grew up with like big box stores and imagine you go to the city for the first time and like you see, you know, the Carson Perry Scott building for Target. I hope, I hope there's some like, you know, young Zoomer out there who's like awakened to architecture by visiting Goth Target. I, I mean, there could be worse fates. I mean, it, you know, it could be a giant spirit Halloween. That's true. Well, it's a question. What, what, what was, what was your awakening? What was the moment that turned you on to architecture? Can you remember? Oh my gosh. That's a, that's I know a, now we're going that, back. That is a deep question. While you think about that, I can, I can probably say mine, or at least I can say like the thing. And I remember it was, it was Rem Koolhaas got me into this, like Rem, it's always Rem, but like, yeah, I remember like the hoopla over SMLXL back in the day and like saved up, saved up my beer money in college for it. And, uh, and this is the thing I always remember because Alexandra Lang wrote a whole essay about how she's so proud of her first edition yellow cover SML XL. And like, once again, I am like the era beast because I've got the blue cover second edition and I will never stop feeling inferior about this. I'm going to have to find a copy of the strand or something, but, but it was SML XL reading the generic city, reading the Atlanta essay, the Singapore essay, like all those things, you know, I, uh, your, your, your approach to it was definitely, you know, a collegiate and intellectual, uh, entry point where I think, I think mine would, mine was this weird combination of, you know, already being fascinated with other aspects of infrastructure, like as every pre preteen boy is, you know, I was interested in, still am interested in trains and cities in general and how things move and integrate. But, um, you know, my, my grandfather used to take me to the Sears tower, what was then the Sears tower. Uh, and uh, he was actually an electrician with uh, Commonwealth Edison and had worked on the tower prior to its enclosure. So he had pictures of himself standing, not quite on the iron, like the, the lunching construction workers in the Empire State Building photo, but, you know, in, before there were windows on the thing. And I thought that was fascinating. And I think I really, really looked up to him. And I thought, I really want to see what this is all about. And of course, I love going up in a tall building. But... Uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, I remember a diary entry from seventh grade, like our, our teacher asked us to keep entries. And it was this bizarro madman fantasy that I had that before there was ever any such thing. I said, I think my plan is to become an architect at Skidmore Owings and Merrill and 
die after having an affair with my secretary at age 55. I mean, ideally, yeah. And you would be found dead in Grand Central Station. Like, if it was good enough for Louis Kahn, it's good enough for you. Then. It was Penn Station, actually. Oh, you're like, right. It was, it was a little Penn down Station. market. That's true. That's true. Yeah. On his way to Bangladesh, I believe, right? He was working on, like, the Dhaka project. I, their whole, their it whole was that capital. time. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, that, that's a very disturbing ambition for a seventh grader to have. And I, I think my, my English teacher was pretty aghast. That is, I would say, man, SOM, no less too. I can imagine being aghast at like wanting to work at SOM. You know, uh, that's, you know, think, think higher, think Star Architects. Yeah. I don't think that was the thing she was. That's against. probably it. Yeah. The baby rams weren't a thing yet. Okay. Alex, I want to call on you here. What, what, what red pill do you to be into urbanism? That's actually a really interesting question. Um, so I, I don't think it was so much just architecture. I think when I was younger, I very much just took it as it is and then I just had to accept this. Um, but I always kind of had this like obsession and interest with Europe and kind of just like how people live their lives there. And, you know, kind of a weird thing as a teenager to be fantasizing about walking places and uh, just hopping on a metro. And I just, you know, thought that had such a romantic idea about it. So I think it actually stemmed from that because so, you know, San Diego and most of Southern California is dominated by cars, highways. And, you know, I would find myself as soon as I had a car to drive to these places where I could kind of live out that, you know, fantasy of these little areas to walk around. So it developed from that. And now retrospectively, I'm like, oh, actually, I don't have to accept this as, you know, the status quo. Let's change this. So it came from that. Damn. I don't have such an interesting <laughs> writing letters, but, you know. <laughs> But this, but I'd say it's funny using the Matrix analogy, like, yes, like, you know, like the sense of like, something is wrong here and I could detect something wrong in like the American built environment. And like, you know, there's this like a, yeah, I think for most of us who are unlike Dan, who is a master's in architectures, uh, holder of those of us who are just like amateurs in it, which you and I ultimately are, like, it's just like a feeling like something's wrong with the American built environment and like wanting to get out of there. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. We were talking about Venice, obviously we haven't been there, but like, I think, I don't know if I talked about this last episode or not, but like, you know, the feeling I have of being in Venice, it feels like being swaddled. Like, you know, like, you know, for, for those of you who are non-parents listening, like when you have a newborn, like you, you take a very loose cloth and you tie it so tightly around them so they feel they're still in the womb. And like being in Venice is the feeling of me being swaddled. The walls are so tight around you in some of those passageways that instead of claustrophobia, I feel like secure, mm -hmm. like, and like an infinite geometries unfold in them. It's like the ultimate expression of that, which is partly why I just can't ever get over that American tourists go there and then go back to suburban Houston. I just don't understand like how the cognitive dissonance doesn't change one thing or another for them. But well, it, to me, it seems like they almost approach it like it's Disneyland. Like, and that's kind of how I always saw it. It's just like, I, know, I don't understand why Disneyland doesn't move there. them. Yeah, yeah. but Mystery USA is great. I mean, Walt's approximation of a vanished bell epic america like wall street main street usa is a fun place to walk on yeah i think it's like that i know disneyland's disneyland's good urbanism that's true i mean there's my hot take it's, it's, it's walkable it has a streetcar it has a monorail i mean until un uh, until the pandemic was over i would say so you know i was i was at disneyland march 1st march 2nd 2020 i'm sorry quebec um, but yeah, I mean, we're looking at my step counts. Like I did not move from my chair, like the entire first year of the pandemic. Uh, and yeah, and, like I walked 20,000 steps, like my last day in Disneyland, you know, I started paying attention to these things. And now that we're in Venice and now that we're here in Torino, I started walking in and like Americans walk more at Disneyland than they probably do at any other given spot in the building. For sure. But it's just so backwards. Like, let's drive our car to go walk someplace. Mm -hmm. it, you know, but that's funny. It's funny you say that because, like, that is definitely, like, the gambit of, like, the new urbanists. And I know Chris Leinberger has talked about that and others. Like, and that they would argue there's nothing ultimately wrong with that. Like, if that's what it takes, yeah. like, to build, like, walkable nodes out in, like, Frisco, Texas and McKinney and sure, these other, sure. like, exurban modes, and, like, that's fine. Meet people where they are. So, 
Oh, yeah. I think that has to be the answer to it because, you know, what else? Yeah, how many generations have you got here to fix this? Yeah. I guess you could argue that it's a start, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and it's certainly better to see people adapting those forms than to continue to, you know, project big boxes out into the into the wilds. No, true. Well, other things to being here in Torino, again, now that we're on like our own urban vacation, like the highlight for me yesterday was like boarding a tram with Dan and Alex taking one too. That was like vintage wood seats. Like my first thought was like, how do I open, how do I turn this into a bar car in Brooklyn? Like diner oh was back gosh. in the day. Yeah. But it's funny that the, yeah, trams, like I, you know, I know uh, Mike Elison who, uh, who runs, um, he has a Twitter account and like basically resurrects all of his time as a, as an architect in Freiburg and talks endlessly about European urbanism, trams and multi-use. And like half the time I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah. I'm like, I know we get it. Europe's so much better. But then being here, I'm like, right. Like, oh my God, like walking on grassy, you know, tram paths and riding trams and things could be different. I don't know. I'm yeah. the same expression. Yeah. Um, I, I, I can't really find anything objectionable about it. Um, I even love the smell of ozone and the, the thumping of the air compressor on these old things. I do wonder sometimes though, like, you know, I was thinking about this walking this morning, like, you know, with like, you know, Torino's a low slung city. We went up on the top of the Renzo Piano Design Skyscraper, which is, Dan insisted, and I highly recommend because the city just sprawls out in front of you. There's nothing else to obstruct your view. But I was curious, like, does Yan Gale believe that like five-story buildings are the universal human ideal because that's true or because most of Europe is five-scale human beings? five-story buildings right. and you're like retconning like that's your understanding of it too it's funny i sometimes wonder if like the copenhagenists are committing the same crimes as, like american suburbanites be like this is just nature this is just how things are meant to be right i i definitely see i mean certainly in, in my line of work in my my day job which is uh you know to talk about skyscrapers and their interface with the city um you know, everyone the default thing that everyone says is that you know the the the, the correct kind of density is basically the European 19th century city density, you know, but you know, not everyone, not every place can be Paris, you know, it, it, it's, you've, it's just like we said about, you know, developing the, you know, trying to build a, 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 a human scale development in the, in the exurbs of Dallas, like, you know, you gotta meet people where they are. And, and so how do, how do we work toward that? Um, how do we make the, the typologies that, we have of which we have a huge, you know, palette. How do we make them better? How do we well, make them more environmentally gen- friendly, you know, without reducing everything to this one model? Well, agenda for a future podcast episode, because like I've always thought the future, the future I want to live in is sort of the Hong Kong, but definitely the Tokyo model, which mm-hmm. is like the coolest bar in town is behind a men's store on the seventh floor. And mm-hmm. like, and it's just, you know, it's just natural to stick all these uses into it. I once thought naively years ago, or maybe I'm still hopeful that like when the augmented reality future finally comes, when we get the metaverse there, like you'll be able to look at a building and see everything going on inside the building, like the, the opacity of, of towers and office buildings and like that mixed use is like hiding in plain sight. Like we need to do a better job of that. I, I love that mm-hmm. about Tokyo that like there's just restaurants on the seventh floor of random buildings and it's in elevator banks and you figure it out and go there and like. I don't know. That's 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 my ideal urbanism, even more like the European style of like you know you can put all sorts of programs into a forty-story building, and like it's not just leasing it out. So yeah, you can, and and and, and you know there's also ways to advertise what's going on. Um, you know the you know the, I guess the, the default you know commercial model in Japan is is to literally put a sign out that has here's what's on the first floor, second, third, 
Um, but yeah, you could advertise that architecturally in interesting ways, which we often don't. I mean, skyscrapers, I mean, you know, are often very uniform um, and, and kind of boring, you know? I mean, they're usually just a shaft that goes straight up and some little articulations here and there where you have mechanical openings, but usually not much differentiation in terms of their obvious program. But actually the one that we just mentioned is relatively uniform, but you can definitely tell there's something going on up there with a nice uh, uh, big sort of, I don't know, what would you call it? They call it like a botanical garden. It's not, it's, that's pushing it a little bit, but it's a very nice uh, open glassed in space with a three tiered uh, restaurant and a convention hall. And then on top of that, the bar lounge, which is kind of done in a totally eighties style. Um, it was awesome. Like, like, I, you know, for those who didn't see it, like hanging, hanging colors. Hopefully we'll, maybe we'll post some Alex photos of it into the show notes here, but like, you know, but like pastel colored furniture. I, I don't know. I got like strong, like Christian Lacroix vibes from it. And like, you know, like Patrick Bateman was, they were definitely inspecting, you know, Patrick Bateman's business cards and or cat videos, you know, mm -hmm. at some table. Do you like Genesis? Very, very nice Bateman. Look at, look at this cat. Something like that, but that was that was delightful. My question for you there, Dan, is like, who is who's the who's the postmodern skyscraper theorist? Like, is it still like do we go back to Kulas's you know delirious New York and like his discussion about like how we had all this uses in buildings and then now they're just extrapolated towers? And I, that I, book's fifty years old, practically. It is right. I know seventy-seven, which means that I'm it means I'm forty-four. That's my birth. It's like getting a birth birth year watch. My birth year book here. Give me a you can't see this, but my face is going gray as my. Here. It's ashen. Uh, ashen, just taking it back. Yeah, well, you know, there, it was such a powerful uh, book that I think, and, and, and Rem has so many disciples and acolytes who are also now very powerful. Who all are proud of. Sure, why not? Yeah, yeah of course. Um, that I don't know that anyone's really replaced that. I mean, most of the, most of the interesting writing about skyscrapers that has happened since then has been people like the recently deceased uh, Michael Sorkin, um, you know, who's being honored at uh, this, uh, this event. Um, and, you know, people who are looking at it as a, like a sort of socialist uh, critique, um, which is, you know, well-deserved, especially now that we're going into these lock boxes in the sky and billionaire needles and, and what have you. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't have a good answer for that. You know, maybe there's maybe there's a gap to be filled there. That's true. Well, you know, another another agenda for future guests. Like, you know, we should get Peter Rees on here one time. Like, Dan and I have both done the tour of the Square Mile of London with Peter. And, you know, again, if you're unfamiliar with him, he was the master planner of the City of London Corporation, personally approved the Gherkin, Cheese Grater, Walkie Talkie, all those, and and never approved much housing, which is part of this whole thing. He is the one who calls those, you know, yeah, uh, safety deposit boxes in the sky. Mm -hmm. It'd be fun to have Peter on here to talk about why he never approved any of that and his disapproval of skyscraper te uh, typologies today. I would be delighted. Peter has <laughs> opinions. Raconteur doesn't do that man justice in no. his own way. Well, that'll be something to have on there. Uh, well, what are we looking forward to at Utopian Hours today? I mean, I've got my session, but, you know, don't let me stand on that. But anything else we're looking forward to while we're here in Torino or anything else we're doing? Dan went to the Lingotto with the uh, the, Agnelli, the former Agnelli factory, which I guess the folks here behind this festival are going to try to actually build their own version of a sky garden up there. Which, you know, for which they course. absolutely should, because, um, you know, you're talking about a building that's, I don't even know how big it is. It's probably a, a kilometer long. It used to be an assembly line for Fiat automobiles. And, um, you know, it's basically re retained its exterior, but it doesn't 
they didn't do that much with the, I mean, the conversion is basically, it's a very long mall with a couple of uh, courtyards. And then they retained the helical um, driveway that goes up to the to racetrack on the top. But until now, there had been no use of the, the top. But that wasn't really your question. Your question was about what's happening at Utopia now. Yeah, we're also going to see you in Torino. We have, this is our last dance here, man. Last episode from, from Frozen where we're together for now. And like yeah. also our last night, in, last night in Venice, I almost said. Last night in Torino. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I guess uh, in terms of the program, obviously I'm looking forward to your presentation. But I really want to hear from the fellow who's doing, is it called Magway? Um, from, uh, from Britain uh, about... In the future, we will all travel in tubes. It's called Magway. Yeah, yeah. we met, uh, I'll have to look up his name here, but like we met the guys who are like Hyperloop, but for good is how I think of it. You know, although now that I'm looking at the photos, wow, it's, wow, it's very Hyperloop here. Like, look at, look at this, Dan, if you can see around here. It's, um, yeah, it's conveyor belts and pneumatic tunnels and, um, yeah, all sorts yeah, of we, stuff we here. Phil, Phil Davies. Phil Davies, yeah. yeah. He uh, was a little, he was very like, he has that great combination of strident and cagey um, where he's like, he's like, Oh yeah, this is totally happening. We've got it locked, you know, Hyperloop or, you know, or Elon Musk, you know, he's a, he's a competitor of ours. It's like, yes, yes. And which one of you has any sort of public view bandwidth, but maybe that doesn't matter because if he really does have secret logistics clients, I'm skeptical. I'm a little skeptical. I think the proof of proof of uh, proof of burden is on him here. Yeah. Burden of proof, I should say. Correct. Yeah. So, but yeah, that will be an interesting. I am one looking forward to it though. To see the future of tubes, tubes, tubes is the future of a lot of things here. Um, well, yeah, I was not trying to fish for compliments, um, you know. But yes, we're doing open collectives this afternoon here, talking about our BNLI project, which I've already bored enough there. Yeah, the one I'm looking forward to, I think, um, is the lessons from the floating school of Legos, which is a mm. extremely troubled project. Which going back to some of our other discussions here. Fetid, I think, of the 2016 Biennale, held up as a great example of like post-climate chain architecture. And then that school like fell into disrepair, was never actually used, a, a very controversial project. So I'd be curious to see like how much they get into actually lessons learned there. Um, Alex, anything on the agenda today? Have you even looked at it? I mean... A little bit, I just pulled it up now. All um, right. Obviously, open collectives. And yeah, it was really interesting to, to talk to this Phil um, last night, so the Magway. Um, I think the Berlin... River swimming seems interesting. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of along for the ride. So I, I kind of like when things surprise me. And I always feel like it's what I don't see coming that uh, impresses me the most. Yeah, the one I'm looking forward to is uh, one on Helsinki, which is like the whole plan to yep. connect uh, Helsinki and Tallinn, uh, which is also particularly interesting to me because I spent time researching like the rise of like nomad visas. Like I, I am an Estonian e-resident, I'll have you all know. So, you know, back, back, back when the early days of the Trump administration, when I couldn't actually smuggle my family offshore, I could at least smuggle our money offshore if it came to that. So, um, so yeah, I, I am now legally entitled to do banking in the EU and, uh, and incorporate in the EU through that. But then the, the, the Estonians went one step further and like created nomad visas and, you know, and now Helsinki is trying to recruit people there as well. So I'm very curious to see like how they think of that in tandem, because it, it's, it's an interesting question about post-sovereignty, borders, big theme, of course, of the BNL this year. So... We'll see how they do that. And also involves a pretty significant Tunnel. tube. Speaking of tunnels, I wonder if Phil is on top of that. Mm -hmm. well, we'll find out there. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, let's leave it at that here because right now we're missing the tribute to Michael Sorkin. That's a poor way to, uh, to show tribute. So we'll keep this <laughs> We'll keep this episode relatively brief here when we toss it out on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for joining us, Alex. Thank you for having me, guys.
All right. We'll be back soon, stateside or at least North America side for episode four. But until then, listeners, are you the dead or cheap? Are you the dead or cheap? Ciao.